0: From the time that I was a, a very young boy, I've always had a fascination with fire. Uh, a, a great interest and a fascination with it, that was actually one of the reasons that led me a number of years ago to want to pursue a career as a firefighter. I, I love this stuff. It is, uh, it's is—it's uh, incredibly interesting and exciting, led me to perform all kinds of great experiments with it and also, on occasion, to also nearly burn down houses and hillsides. Uh, <laughs> That's because uh, uh, fire—it uh, it, is—it's it, very fascinating, beautiful. It brings us things like heat and light, and yet fire is also a great responsibility—a responsibility that brings with it certain uh, rules and expectations that are attached to it. And when those rules and expectations are followed, it's good. Fire is a, a powerful tool in our hands for great benefit. And yet, when we ignore those rules and we just ig- abandon the expectations, great. Devastation can come because of it. And just like fire, the the relationship between a husband and a wife is also a a beautiful thing with great potential for for benefit and human flourishing, but which is also a great responsibility. carries with it rules and expectations along with it. That's one of the reasons why we we make vows to each other when we marry somebody. In the Bible, God actually goes so far as to refer to the marriage relationship as a covenant. He calls it a covenant, which that word just means, it's basically an agreement between two parties that that carries with it blessings for following the the rules and the guidelines of the covenant and curses for breaking them, for being unfaithful to them. A simple example of this would be maybe a man in in feudal times, he would come to a landowner and say, give me a piece of your property. I'll set up my home and a farm there. And so I'll use your land. But as a result, because of that, I'm going to give you some of the harvest. I'm going to give you uh, uh, my allegiance to you. If somebody tries to attack your land, I'm going to fight in your army. So there's benefit for both parties in, in entering into this covenant together. And if they break that covenant, then there's consequences. He, he doesn't give the produce. He doesn't fight for him. Or the landowner takes the land away if they're not faithful to this covenant. And that's incredibly important for us to understand what that means as we look at our passage this morning in Malachi, because if you didn't know, one of the primary ways that God refers to his relationship with us, with his people, is with the language of a marriage covenant. Jesus as the bridegroom and God's people, his church. As the bride, which I know that, that's, that's hard to get our minds around at the best of times, particularly if you happen to be a straight male. I, I, I'm a, a pastor. I understand that this is metaphor. We're talking about uh, God's showing the depth of relationship he wants to have with us. And yet, I, I have to struggle each time to get over that language of Jesus as my bridegroom. It's hard. It sounds weird. But it's a beautiful thing, actually, and it describes something very beautiful. One of the big reasons that God uses that language of marriage covenant to describe His relationship with us is because, just like with fire, just like with marriage, God also promises benefit, blessing for being faithful to the obligations of that covenant with Him and curses difficulties uh, for, for being unfaithful to them. For God's people here in the book of Malachi, their unfaithfulness to God was resulting in just that. Not, not blessing, but cursing. And then, on top of that, unfaithfulness to God, which we looked at two weeks ago, unfaithfulness to God was now spilling over. It was overflowing into all kinds of other unfaithfulness all over the place, including unfaithfulness to one another. That's just the thing, isn't it? Faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the rules and obligations in, in whatever context you're talking about, it never just stays contained in one tiny little place, does it? It always tends to leak out and and overflow into all kinds of other places, bringing uh, different uh, consequences. There's different uh, implications that come, for good or bad, as it overflows all over the place. Just like when I was a kid and I decided to to ignore the rules and responsibilities of fire, and I lit that little patch of grass on fire in an uncontained place, in an uncontained area, and nearly lit the entire uh, mountainside of Camden's on fire. Thankfully, I was able to get it out. But, but I ignored the rules, and as a result, it started to spill over all over the place. Well, if you have not, if it's your first Sunday with us today, or if you've just forgotten because we were away last week, we are going through this series on the book of Malachi, this last book of the Old Testament. And really, this is the last place God speaks to His people before really in, uh, implementing like a 400-year time out his people because of their disobedience to him. he doesn't speak to them for another 400 years after this just to catch you up uh, where we've been Israel is, is coming in waves to return to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon they've been in, in, in exile there and as they return they're rebuilding Jerusalem they're rebuilding the temple but when their expectations of what that would look like aren't met by God and they, they feel like he's not loving them anymore they become very disillusioned with God become very unsatisfied with God. And as we saw two weeks ago, they also begin to enter into this half-hearted, really false worship of God. So in the midst of their disillusionment, of their falling away, God sends this prophet Malachi to help correct their vision of Him, help correct their understanding of what what He is like and call them back to faithfulness, to their covenant with Him. We looked at the first Sunday, we said was God begins, He started out with, demonstrating and declaring the fact of his love for his people. He says, I have loved you. And then he frames the whole discussion from there. The rest of the book is all framed out of that one truth. I have loved you. I I, I do love you and I continue to love you. He frames it that way because God knows every single other question, every other issue that Israel raises all arises out of. It comes out of their loss of their confidence in God's love for them. That's why they act in these ways. That's why they ask these questions. And then after establishing his love for them, God then turns the table and he begins to say, actually, Israel has is acting not in loving ways towards him. He's, he's withholding blessing from them, not because he stopped loving them, but because rather than honoring God's name with their worship, they're actually showing contempt for it. They're showing contempt for God's name by offering Him the leftovers of what they have in their sacrifices and keeping the best back for themselves. He said as well, one of the most culpable in that false worship of God was the priests. The priests who should have been leading the people to worship God properly, they were receiving these sacrifices from the people, these these lame, uh, blind animals, and they were offering them to God and then pronouncing forgiveness, pronouncing blessing over the people that they didn't have see the confusion that would come. So that's where we've been so far, and, and as we continue today through Malachi, what we're going to see is that sadly, just like I said, faithfulness or unfaithfulness to the rules, it doesn't stay contained in one place. They've so been unfaithful to God, yes, but now that unfaithfulness to God leaks out. It spills all over the place. Now to unfaithfulness to one another. And I want us to look at that because we said two weeks ago, hey, we too can worship God falsely. We can falsely worship Him and and, and show contempt for His name and our false worship of Him. But so too can our unfaithfulness to God lead to unfaithfulness to one another. One another in in this church family, in the family of God, in the other churches around our neighborhood, all these things. It can lead to unfaithfulness to one another. And it can bring the same kind of devastation same kind of relational strain that we see happening in Israel. So, as we look at this passage today, I want to look at it in just three ways. I want to show you the family covenant profaned, the marriage covenant profaned, and then finally, guarding against covenant unfaithfulness. Those three things. The family covenant profaned, marriage covenant profaned, guarding against covenant unfaithfulness. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Malachi chapter 2? verse 10 where we started there and just follow along with me and we'll dig into this together see what God has to say to us so let's start by looking at the family covenant profane the family covenant profane now where we see this whole element of family is first of all in verse 10 look with me there Malachi writes have we not all one father did not one God create us why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another now there's a few things going on there. First of all, by saying, hey, don't we all have one father? Malachi's trying to say, hey, all of you, you, you people of Israel, we're we saying we all have one father. We're all one family. I'm speaking to my family members here right now. Now, there's some debate as to who he's referring to by that father. Is he meaning God the father? Or does he mean Abraham, who was considered the father of, a, of all Israel? But either way, the point is he's, he's referring to God's family that was formed through that covenant that God made with Abraham all those years ago. He, he called Abraham to leave his country, go to Canaan, and he said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's the covenant that God had made with, with Abraham. So he's saying, all of you, family covenant family of Israel, I'm talking to you. And this covenant of our fathers, covenant of our fathers, what I'm calling the family covenant, is that covenant that God made with Abraham covenant that God made with Abraham was then passed on to his son Isaac, which was then passed on to his son Jacob. Those would have been considered the the fathers of Israel. So, he's saying this this family, this covenant family that was formed through the covenant made with Abraham and all his fathers. Then he says, you notice he says, we've profaned that covenant. Profane means to treat as unholy something that's holy. So he says, They've profaned this covenant of our fathers. How have they done that? By breaking faith. Breaking faith. Only he says, they haven't, just, they haven't broken it with God. They've already done that. We, we saw that two weeks ago. But he says, no, we've profaned the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another. Breaking faith with one another. That, that term, breaking faith, in the original Hebrew, has the, uh, the connotation of dealing treacherously violating the terms of of a covenant. So, two weeks ago, we saw how Israel was breaking faith with God in their false worship of Him, and how they were bringing these these meaningless, useless sacrifices to God. Now we see that that unfaithfulness is spreading. It's it's metastasizing. It's it's spilling over into their unfaithfulness with one another. And I'm saying, Malachi is trying to say there's a direct correlation between those things. As we are unfaithful to God, it tends to show up, demonstrate itself in our unfaithfulness to one another. I think he's showing us that this connection between those two things. A prime example of what that looked like is what we saw that, that sad interplay between the priests in the temple and the people of God, bringing those unacceptable offerings and then the priests offering those sacrifices to God. So first, yes, it started out they were unfaithful to God in offering this false worship to Him. Yes but weren't they also being unfaithful to each other? The priests were not being faithful to the people and calling them to true worship, saying this is what true worship to God actually looks like. They were accepting these things and offering them. And the people were being unfaithful to the priests. They, they were bringing these unacceptable sacrifices, which they knew were not acceptable, and they weren't holding the priests accountable. So They're breaking faith with God, and it's demonstrating itself and breaking faith with one another. The first example that Malachi gives of how they've done this is in verse 11. Look with me here. Malachi says, Judah has broken faith. Judah is the, the tribe of Israel that actually returned from exile. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing is being committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, there's a lot to look at there. But before we get to it, quickly look at the consequence. Look at the spillover of what happens in verse 12. He says, As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings and sacrifices to the Lord Almighty. So there's serious consequences to what's going on here. There's serious implications. Maybe being cut off from the tents of Jacob, maybe that doesn't sound that bad to you. Maybe that sounds like, you know, you just had your membership to Mountain Equipment Co-op revoked, but that's not what it means. It means you, you're, you're cut off from the family of God. You, you're, you're put out of, of the community and the care and protection of God's family because you've been unfaithful to the terms of the covenant. But let's look back at verse 11 again. This gets a little bit complex. I'll do my best to, to walk us through this. Complex because there's a bit of controversy, a bit of differing opinion about what these two specific terms mean. What does the sanctuary the Lord loves mean? And what does marrying the daughter of a foreign god mean? What, what, what does that even mean? Well, two different opinions. First of all, what is the sanctuary? Desecrating the sanctuary the Lord loves could mean the sanctuary in the temple. It could mean, hey, you're bringing unholy sacrifices, unacceptable sacrifices. You're desecrating this temple sanctuary by offering these uh, sacrifices there. And in the context, when we were talking about false worship, that, that makes logical sense. And yet the word sanctuary, actually in Hebrew, just means holiness or what is holy, which if you didn't know, is also what God refers to when he's talking about his people. We read that verse uh, this morning in our uh, singing time, Deuteronomy 7, 6. God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So given that reality, the sanctuary the Lord loves could also just be the people themselves. The people themselves are the sanctuary that's being desecrated as they bring these unworthy sacrifices to God and they're sent both collectively as a nation and individually they're desecrating themselves. Either way, I think when we see what was happening in that context and the way it's spilling over, I think it's both actually. They're, they're desecrating God's temple by worshiping falsely that way, but they're also desecrating themselves in that way. Those are the two predominant views, and I'm saying the confusion I think is just solved by saying I think it's both those things. But when it comes to this idea now of marrying the daughter of a foreign god, how they had desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves, this is a bit more a uh, controversy here because I don't think both views are, are, are as equally right. Different opinions here as well. One theory is that marrying the daughter of a foreign god is, he's talking about intermarriage, intermarriage with uh, foreign nations. Okay, so there's a great uh, history of this in in, uh, the Old Testament, especially. Uh, People would uh, marry uh, women of foreign nations who worshiped foreign gods, and then they would lead those people uh, to worship their foreign gods, kind of a blended, syncretistic kind of worship. And as a result, actually, it brought about eventually the apostasy. For which God actually sent Israel into exile in Babylon in the first place that's why they were there because they had done this so uh, that makes sense that, that it could mean that and yet something as I study this passage that really uh, stood out very specifically is this think about this does Malachi say that these people have married the daughters of foreign nations that worship foreign gods what does it say you desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god, how do, how do you marry the daughter of a god? What, what does that even mean? Well, if you remember, uh, or maybe you've heard this, you've seen it. We've all seen this in films uh, uh, during uh, dynastic governments, uh, feudal monarchies, and these sort of things. When nations were at war, one of the ways that they would form alliances and make peace with each other is they would offer their daughters in marriage to the other king. This would bring about peace between the nations. As long as, you know, my daughter stays safe, we're not going to attack you and you don't attack us. We're forming a, an alliance. We're forming a covenant together that says we're not going to attack each other anymore. But given the fact that, that all of this is, is talking about, all of Malachi's argument here is centering around false worship of God. And he's doing it in the context of talking about this covenant relationship with God I think it's also very possible to say what Malachi is referring to here, marrying the daughter of a foreign god, is simply idolatry. It's idolatry. It is uh, spiritual adultery, spiritual polygamy, really. I've got a covenant, I've, I'm, I've a covenant relationship with this God, but now I'm trying to form another covenant alongside this God and worship Him, too. Clearly, God is not cool with it. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament, another verse we read this morning, when He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now this particularly is where that marriage covenant language is so significant because just like in our marriage vows, the terms of Israel's covenant with God were single, absolute fidelity and loyalty to God alone. Remember uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. There's no room for, for other suitors to come in, no other lovers to come in. There's, there's no uh, exception clauses. There's no provisos. There's no what happens in Vegas kind of thing. It's, it's sole fidelity and covenant to God alone. And by violating the terms, by forming these alliances, these covenant relationships with other gods, with other idols, Israel is violating the terms of the covenant, which is why God says in verse 12, they, they are cut off from the family. They are put out from the protection and care of my family because of this. If you read through Malachi, even what we've looked at so far, maybe you'd say, okay, I agree with that, but where? where? Where is Israel worshiping foreign gods? All of this seems to be about them, you know, they're falsely worshiping God, but they're worshiping him. They're bringing sacrifices to him. Where are they worshiping foreign gods? And I'm saying, you know, you can see where they're worshiping foreign gods by looking at the offerings they were bringing. Look at the offerings that Israel was bringing to God. What do I mean by that? Well, if you want to know what it is or who it is that you truly worship, you need to look at what it is you give the best of your time, your talent, and your treasure to. What do you give the best of those things to answer that question as honestly and uh, and objectively as you can, and you will know, even if you don't like the result, what the answer is, you'll know exactly what it is you worship. Look at the offerings. Look at the offerings Israel was bringing God. They were bringing Him blind, lame, sometimes stolen animals. They bring to God in sacrifices, things that had no worth to them, no resale value whatsoever. Look up at verse 14 of chapter 1. Look what they were bringing and keeping for themselves. God says, Cursed is the chief who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. So who who were the foreign gods that Israel was sharing their worship of God with? They were forming covenants and alliances with? They were the gods of comfort, security, Safety. In the word, although they'd been promised to another, the real God that Israel tried to worship alongside God with their offerings was the God of self. That's the, that's the God that they were giving their daughters in marriage to. They were forming alliances with the God of self. I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the low-hanging fruit. we have said this a lot here, but it's worth, first of all, thinking about the fact that living for us today in one of the most beautiful things affluent cities in the world we're in danger of worshiping these same gods ourselves every day I don't know I I don't know your personal calendar I don't know what it says on your bank statement I I don't know uh, what hidden talents you have but you do and I understand that in a room like this we've got a great deal of diversity there is a wide range of financial, emotional, physical ability. I'm just asking you to consider right now in your own heart. If you look at the consequences in Israel, I'm asking you to consider yourself whatever ability God's given you. Who or what gets the best? Who gets the top cut of those things? Because being surrounded, being inundated day in and day out with a, a ridiculous standard that we try to live up to, we're constantly in danger of, of redirecting worship that is supposed to be devoted to God back to ourselves. And in so doing, being unfaithful to God and being unfaithful to each other. Some of the simple ways that can work out in our own lives is you know what? Maybe you don't have a lot of treasure. But because of that, you've actually got a lot of time on your hands. You've got a lot of time you could offer. But you don't offer it in service, you don't offer it in giving yourself to prayer that a lot of us maybe wouldn't have that kind of a devoted time to give. You don't offer it in prayer. You don't offer it in meeting with others. You still keep it back to yourself. Maybe you're someone who has very little time. You're super busy, but because of that, you have a great deal more treasure than others. But maybe you don't offer that, tr- that top cut of that treasure in order to serving the needs you see around you. So in order to serve the needs of our church, in order to see our mission go forward, you hold it back to yourself. Hold on to the, the God of security and comfort. Maybe, maybe this is uh, some of our students in here, maybe you have no time and no treasure, but you've got a great deal of talent. God's gifted you in some amazing ways that, that you could be using in service for Him, serving the needs of our community around us, serving the needs we have in our church. If you're holding it back, you don't give God that top cut of it. Hold on to the God of comfort. What makes me feel best, what makes me feel most comfortable here, and I'm saying, when we do that, we're unfaithful to God, we're unfaithful to each other, when we do that, now listen, you know church, I'll tell you, we've got some amazing examples of people who absolutely give the top cut, you see that every Sunday, you saw that last week at the retreat, people who absolutely give the top cut, and it's a beautiful thing, God has blessed it amazingly, and I'm so thankful that God it. The second thing I want to say, and I include all of us in this listen, the gods of comfort, security, and safety, at best, will forever be the ceiling of growth for us as a church family. And at worst, they'll be the death of it. Say that again. The gods of comfort, security, and safety will forever be the ceiling of how, how much we can grow as a church family. And they could, in the end, be the death of it. So here's what I mean by that. If you think about this, needs to be an entire worldview shift in our minds. It requires buy-in and engagement from all of us, because the reality is discipleship is messy. Partnership with other families in in the family of God, other churches, it's not it's not quick and easy and, and just obvious. Engagement With people who don't know and love Jesus right now, it's tricky. It requires a lot of risk, actually, and a whole number of different levels. But if our goal at the end of the day as a church is just to create a church, to create and and to live lives where we feel comfortable and safe, in the end, we will never achieve our purpose as a church to see our city and world. We won't do it. If our goal is just to create a church where the church feel most comfortable. We're never going to be a place where, where the unchurched will come and where they'll, they'll come back to and they'll be grown and built up in the community of love and faith that we have here. And listen, I'm not talking about changing the message. The message doesn't change. It's offensive all on its own. But what can we be doing differently? How can we step out of what's safe and comfortable for us in order to see men and women all around here who need to hear The amazing hope of the gospel. What do we need to do differently, even if it feels uncomfortable to us in order to see that happen? And again, I've seen some beautiful examples of people who are risking, who are stepping out, those people who are stepping out and leading and teaching our ESL ministries, uh, people who have shared stories just recently about the way you're engaging your neighbors with the gospel, sharing Jesus with them in all these ways that are risky to you beautiful and God is blessing. I'm not surprised at all actually to already see renewal and growth happening in the soil of that offering. It's not surprising at all. And yet as a church, I think what's happening with a few of us needs to spread and overflow now to all of us. It can't just be a few of us. It needs to be all of us in order to be faithful to God and to each other. It needs to spill over to all of us. So as a collective whole, we are all on that same mission Our city and world renewed. And I believe the one question that will help get us all in line behind that is answering the question very simply Whose kingdom am I building? To overcome the gods of comfort, safety, and security, ask yourself honestly, ask yourself this question as you begin each day Whose kingdom am I building today? Is it mine or is it God? That's the family covenant profaned. Unfaithfulness to God demonstrating itself in our unfaithfulness to one another. We're all in danger of it, myself included. The second point quickly just grows really out of that first point. We'll spend a little bit less time here, although it's no less important, looking at the marriage covenant profaned. The marriage covenant profaned in these next few verses, if you look down now to verse 14 there's really a picture of despair on the part of God's people. They, they can clearly tell something is wrong. God's not pleased with their offerings, but they're so blinded by their own deception, as well as the fact of the, the priest's unfaithful leadership of them, they can't, put the, they can't put it together. They don't know why God isn't pleased with them. So they just ask him, why? Why aren't you accepting our, our sacrifices? Why aren't you pleased with us? And you can see their anxiety and confusion because in their minds, nothing's changed. They're doing exactly what they were doing before, only now the result is wildly different, and they can't put it together. Why? And this is like when someone uh, uh, first tried to teach me how to use a universal remote. How do you switch from PVR to looking at cable channels? Push these buttons, this, this sequence. And yet they go away. The very next day, I do the exact same sequence, and all I can get is Dory the Explorer, and I don't know what's going on. Like, well, I'm doing the same thing. Why is it a different result? That's that's. That's the anxiety that they're experiencing here. We're offering sacrifices to you just like you taught us. Why are you not blessing So Look at what God's answer is in verse 14. He says, you ask why? And he says, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So, I said this point grows directly out of the last point because as Israel disregards and profanes God and then disregards the covenant of their fathers and being unfaithful towards one another, this is just another example of how their unfaithfulness is working itself out. It's working itself out now in their marriages. And God says, your marriage to your spouse, that wasn't just a legal arrangement, it wasn't just a piece of paper that you signed, okay, now you're married. No, no, this was a covenant, a deep covenant that was formed between you two, and I was witness to it. And I joined you together as one. You see that at the beginning of verse 15. he says, Has not the Lord made them one? This is a direct reference back to Genesis 2.24 in the very first marriage between Adam and Eve, when the Bible says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They become one. God says that oneness that he creates in marriage is something that he brings about. God is the one who makes them one. Which is why a lot of older, more traditional wedding vows include Jesus' words in Matthew 19 when he says, What God has joined together, what he's made one, let no man separate. If you look at the second half of verse 15 you see what his purpose was in doing that. Why did he make them one? It says here, uh, uh, Why one? because he was seeking godly offspring. Seeking godly offspring. Now, of course, in a literal sense, that that just means what it sounds like. God's desire is that uh, men and women who who know and follow him would have children, raise them to know and follow him. That's absolutely what it means in, in a literal sense, and yet in a much broader sense, it's much more than that. God is also saying that his purpose in creating marriage is that people who witness your relationship who witnessed the oneness that He's created between you two would be a demonstration to them, would be a witness of our oneness with Him. Our marriage relationship is a picture of our oneness with God. And as people see that, as they see that lived out and demonstrated, it leads them to know and, and, and be interested to follow God themselves. Thus, eventually, we pray, creating godly offspring. I want to take just a very quick sidebar, if you'll permit me for a moment, and just say it's important to note marriage is one picture that God gives to picture our union with Him, but it's not the only picture. I've heard this from a number of people now, and it's so true. Within evangelicalism, we've tended to hold up marriage as like the one picture. This is the ideal that everyone needs to shoot for, and if if you're not doing this or you're not seeking this, you're not complete. You're not actually really being able to use by God somehow if you're not married, and that's just not the case. You're single here this morning. Well, you remember the fact that Jesus Himself, the truest picture of complete humanity that there is, was not married. So there must be some way that all of us, married or not, still can demonstrate the the reality, the the unity that we have in our intimate relationship with God and the way that brings about God the offspring. You can use all pictures. Marriage is just one beautiful picture of it, but it's not the only one. In this particular context, however, God is talking about marriage, isn't he? And again, we're seeing that connectedness between unfaithfulness to God spilling over into unfaithfulness with one another and God's rebuke of his people is that as they've broken faith with their covenant with Him, they're now breaking faith their covenant with their marriage partners. And this has truly become a detestable situation for God's people just as it continues to be in our day and age today. It's no less detestable today. This was particularly true for the women. Women in this ancient Near Eastern context who were being discarded and tossed aside for the smallest of reasons. Just given a certificate of divorce, you're out and and would leave them in these circumstances of utter destitution They had nowhere to go. They were now stained because they were divorced women. It brought about all kinds of societal devastation as well as just personal heartache and torment. And I think we all see that today as well, don't we? Probably nobody in here hasn't either seen or experienced the devastation that divorce has on our culture. It continues to happen. I'm saying that's That's why, beginning of verse 16, what does God say? I hate divorce. I hate divorce. You need to see that that, that, God doesn't say that because He hates divorced people. He hates that because He Himself, think about this, God Himself knows the pain of unfaithfulness and of divorce. Do you think about that, that, that God is a divorced husband? Listen to what uh, God says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. This is God himself. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went about and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. God hates divorce because he hates the devastation and destruction that it brings upon people he loves. Because he knows that he longs that we would not experience it ourselves. That's why he calls his people at the end of verse 16, guard yourself. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. And how do we do that? That's how we'll close this one very quickly as we look at guarding against covenant unfaithfulness. Guarding against covenant unfaithfulness. We talked about how God speaks about his relationship with us in the terms of a marriage covenant. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. So I'm saying, first of all, one of the very easiest ways to think about how it is we guard ourselves against covenant unfaithfulness, is to think about our relationship, too, as a marriage relationship and those terms of marriage covenant with God. We need to think of it that way ourselves. Now, depending on your circumstances, I know that's not going to be the same for all of us. Okay, I mean, some of you might say, okay, so just I just need to build into my relationship with God the way I build into my marriage? That's awesome, I can do that. And others of you would say, wait, you mean I need to build into my relationship with God the same way I build into my marriage? I'm not doing so well with that. Uh, I don't think that's going to work out so well. The answer is actually yes to both those things. It's not going to look the same for everybody. Of course, we can't call up Jesus and take him on a weekend to remember marriage conference or something like that. It's, it's, it's different. How do we build into our relationship in a way that guards our covenants, Guards us against being unfaithful. I think, first of all, we start where Malachi starts where God begins and constantly reminding ourselves and coming back to daily the truth, the foundational base truth that God loves us. He has demonstrated His love for us and He will continue to demonstrate His love for us. We must never lose sight of the fact that, that God is also a God who is a reconciling God. He always reaches out to His unfaithful bride and all the ways that we break faith with Him, He continues to, to come out, to reach out to us. He continues to reach out and restore us back into fellowship with Him. Listen to what He says after, saying that He's our husband. The Lord will call you back, we read in Isaiah, as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you says the Lord your redeemer. God is a faithful bridegroom to us. Although we break faith with him daily he continues to reach out for us, and we see this most beautifully in the gospel. Where God sends his son Jesus to restore us back to relationship with him even in the midst of our breaking faith with him. As Romans 5 says while we were yet is while we were in the midst of breaking our covenant he reached out in love and restored us back to himself practically speaking what does this look like how, how do we do this on the day-to-day level well we're talking about faithfulness to god and faithfulness to each other so just very quickly i'm going to break this into two levels i'm going to talk about my job and your job very quickly my job God's word is pretty clear that for me as a pastor, as as someone who who leads a congregation of people, my job is, Ephesians 4 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you, equip you. My faithfulness to you is in how well I equip you. So the way I do that is in what we're doing right now, teaching, training us in the word of God to know what it says, to know how it is we're supposed to live it out, to, to correct our lives, to bring it into alignment with God's will. Listen to what uh, John Piper says. I'm not going to read all of his quotes, but he was talking about this very passage, and he says, when there is a a famine of the word of God in the land, the spiritual nutrients that enable the eye to spot sin are gone. Spiritual protein that gives strength, the moral muscle to the soul to do what is right is missing. Look at the end. When the ministry of the word goes wrong, many are caused to stumble. My faithfulness to you, my job in being faithful to you is to faithfully bring this word to you Sunday in, Sunday out in order to train us all to how to follow it. It's also to pray for you. To pray for you individually as well as as a church that God would lead us and empower us by his spirit to accomplish his mission. And then finally, just to lead you by example. To do the things that I'm asking you to do. And all the ways I would ask you to step out on risk that I would be doing that myself. That's, that's my job and how I'm faithful to you. And how I'm faithful to this church. The ways that I believe you will be faithful, very practically, the ways you can be faithful to this church and to God is this. It has to do all to do with your worship. First of all, assess the depth and sincerity of your worship. Think about that for a moment. The depth and sincerity of your worship in the areas of that time, talent, and treasure. Is God getting the best? Is He getting the top cut of those things, or is He getting the scraps from the left of that, would, that, that doesn't work for long in a marriage relationship. It won't work in the relationship with Him either. We guard ourselves against unfaithfulness by honestly assessing the focus of our worship. That question, whose kingdom are we building? Are you focusing your worship on God? Does He get the top cut in your worship and focused on Him or is it redirected back into serving me and my gods of comfort and security? Finally, I would ask you to honestly assess your relationships, whether that's your marriage, your friendships, your relationships with your family. Are they demonstrating the reality of your oneness with God? Do people see something in the way you live in those relationships that's different? That they would say, man, I, I want what they have. It looks the same, and there's something different about it. Or do those relationships that you have actually push people away from God? Because they say, if that's what it's like to be a Christian in those things, I don't want anything to do with that. What do our relationships demonstrate about our oneness with God? Now, maybe you've noticed all these things focus around really faithfulness to God, not necessarily to each other or to our marriages. There's an intentional reason for that. I think it's the same reason that Malachi gives. It's that direct correlation he draws. As we are unfaithful to God, we are faith unfaithful to one another. So I'm saying let's focus on the root cause of our problem. Let's look at the sin underneath the sin. Yes, we're unfaithful to each other, but it often comes as a result of starting with unfaithfulness to God. So let's, let's correct that position first. How have we been unfaithful to Him? How are we not serving Him with our best? Let's correct that position when I believe we will see faithfulness to each other demonstrated as a result. So I'm asking us now, in these last moments together, to recommit ourselves Recommit ourselves here this morning to faithfulness to God. Submit ourselves to whatever it is He's calling us to, however risky or scary it may be. Well, maybe if you're listening to this and you realize, man, I've I've actually never had a relationship with Jesus like that. I've never loved Him that way or experienced His love or that kind of depth of a marriage covenant. If you want to? I hope you've seen this morning that God is also a God who loves to welcome in people into his family he welcomes them in to worship with him all that's required as it was in Israel's day was the abandonment of foreign gods and the embracing of him alone as the one true God I pray that might be your experience today if you haven't known it yourself so let's go to prayer let's go to prayer together and in these moments either recommit ourselves or commit ourselves for the first time to covenant faithfulness to our God alone